You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Merle Saferstein. As the Director of Educational Outreach at the Holocaust Documentation and Education Center for 26 years, Merle worked closely with hundreds of Holocaust survivors, helping them pass along their legacy of remembrance to hundreds of thousands of students and teachers. Here today to talk about her life and book entitled Living and Leaving My Legacy Volume 1 is Merle Saferstein. Uh, welcome to Uncorking a Story, Merle. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. I, I couldn't be more delighted to have you here. And I'm going to ask you the same question I ask everybody. Uh, first one out of the gate is always, uh, Merle, tell me, where does your story begin? So my writing story begins when I was a little girl. I was about nine years old and I, I was writing to family all over the country. And I remember saying to myself, I need to have, lead an interesting life in order to have something to write about. And so that began and, and it was really letter writing for many, many years. And then in 1974, I started journaling and then the rest is history. I've been journaling ever since. I've written a few books um, only one of which has been published, and now this one. Um, so, so my journey has been writing, but I've also been an educator my entire life, and so that's really been my primary focus. Tell me, what, what was going on in 1974 that prompted you to start journaling? So, my husband and I had moved from Cleveland, Ohio, to Florida, and we had two little children. They were 18 months apart. And I was taking a course, um, I was taking actually a Gestalt course, course, and we had to keep a notebook. And when the course finished, I had this stenographer's pad, God only knows why I bought that, but it had empty pages. And my 30th birthday, I just started reflecting on what was going on in my life at the time. And I opened up that notebook and started writing. And that was the beginning of my journaling. And so, and I also, because we are fairly new to South Florida, I didn't know a lot of people. And I was feeling the need to, to talk to someone. And so my journal became that, that someone. Very cool. Tell me, what's the Gestalt course? Is that based on Gestalt psychology or? Yes, yes. Okay. Was, yeah, I was, so um, actually my husband started going to the gym because he felt like he needed some adult company and I started taking classes. So I took sculpting, I took stained glass 
window making, and then I took transactional analysis, which was TA. I'm okay. You're okay. Oh, I remember that was um, Scott. Scott Harris. Was that Scott Harris? Um, no. No. Okay. I don't remember who it was. Um, and then Gestalt was Fritz Pearls. And so I, I actually took that class with someone who had trained under Fritz Pearls. So that was pretty exciting. And that's how that began. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going back to my undergraduate days because psych was my major. And I was, uh-huh. was going to go on to get a PhD in clinical psychology. And I remember, you know, reading, um, I remember reading, I'm okay, you're okay. Um, and I remember reading like Man's Search for Meaning uh, by Viktor Frankl, which is a powerful book. Um, I mean, to this day, uh, you know, I've, I've never forgotten that book. But do, do you know, do you remember if Frankl was a, a Gestalt psychologist? Was he in, involved in the Gestalt movement? I, I don't remember that. I, I do know he was a psychologist. Um, and and I, too, I mean, that was a book that we read and, and recommended it when I was a Holocaust educator. That was a really important book. And I've probably read it about five or six times myself. But when I was in college, I was an education major. My sophomore year, so this was in the early 60s, in my sophomore year, I called home and told my parents I wanted to become a psychologist. And my mother said, oh, no, you need to be a teacher because you'll always have a job. As if being a psychologist, I wouldn't. <laughs> and, and in those days, we didn't question what our parents said, at least I certainly sure. did. And so I became an educator instead. Yeah, no, and I mean, found that... other ways to do psychology. Oh, without a doubt. Um, I just remember like those early 60s, kind of a golden age of psychology here in the United States anyway, you know, the, the behaviorist movement was was kind of in, in full swing and um, social psychology was about to ramp up with, uh, God, Philip Zimbardo and all the studies he did at Stanford kind of going into the 70s. It was some really innovative work that probably wouldn't be able to get done today. Um, some of it was controversial. Um, well, tell me a little bit about um, getting involved with, um, you know, the Holocaust Documentation and Education Center. So um, I had I had been asked by a friend of mine who I actually met at Hollywood Beach, which you might know Hollywood Beach well. Um, I met this man who eventually became the director of the Anne Frank Center in New York. He had been a priest. He had left the priesthood. Um, he was on his own journey, and he became... Um, the director. And so when he became director, someone in Amsterdam, someone in Germany had found the Anne Frank photo album in a chest of drawers and sent, they recognized Anne Frank and sent it to the Amsterdam Center. The Amsterdam Center created a, an 800 photographic exhibition around Anne Frank and the Holocaust. So my friend Tom asked me if I would be interested in bringing the exhibit to Miami as the pilot city. So this was the 1985. I had quit my job and had actually written a book and was kind of lost. It was, it was my midlife crisis. I was trying to figure out what to do. And Tom knew as a writer, as someone who kept journals and and Anne Frank, knowing Anne Frank spoke to my soul, he figured this was a perfect fit. So I brought the exhibit to Miami. I did a lot of student programming around the exhibit and invited two women from the Holocaust Center to um, come speak. At this one symposium we did for high school students, they liked what they saw. They asked me to come volunteer and help them with their educational programming. And so I did. And I went as a volunteer, their secretary quit. They asked me if I would consider being a secretary. I said, I will for three months, but after that, if I'm not doing education, then I'm out of here. 
and the rest is history. I stayed wow. 26 years and had really an incredible, incredible opportunity to work with probably 500 Holocaust survivors on a, on a first name close basis. Yeah, and I don't want to overlook that. I will come back to it. But you mentioned a midlife crisis book that you wrote. Um, tell me, I can't, I can't let it go. Tell me a little bit more about that. What was the book about? Um, and why did you call it a midlife crisis book? No, it was, it was in my midlife crisis. Yeah. I, was, I was searching for myself. Um, the book was in letter form. And it was, I was, had gone to a dinner party one night and I was sitting next to this man who told me the story that his, um, he and his wife had been divorced and then um, their close friend got cancer and they both wanted to go visit her and they didn't want to do it alone. So they went together. They fell back in love and remarried. It was at the same time that three of our closest sets of friends were getting divorced and, and my husband and I were really having a hard time processing that. And so this was a happy ending. And I thought, oh, I can write a book using this story. So that's what I did. And I was really, I mean, at the time I was interviewing for jobs, I kept getting job offers and turning them away because I just knew I couldn't, I, I needed to be doing something else. I needed to find something that spoke to my soul. So in the interim, I wrote this book. So it was a piece, of, it sounds like it was a piece of fiction. It was fiction. Yeah. Okay. Fiction in letter form. Um, and then it got picked up to be made into a movie. No kidding. And, and I'll never forget this. I went to New York. It was very exciting. The person who did the screenplay for Children of a Lesser God was doing the screenplay for, for the, for the um, book. And then the person who was producing it decided to build a studio in Hungary and drop the whole project. But it didn't matter because the fantasy of just, I mean, just going to New York, I will never forget the day I went to New York and I was sitting with these three men and they're talking about the book and it was so exciting to me. And I called home and my husband told me one of my kids got a progress report and something else was going on. And I thought, too bad. <laughs> and I went back to the table. And I thought, okay, I'd much rather be doing this. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great story. I mean, you know, so many people never make it that far. Um, so was the book ever published or uh, uh, no. it was never published? And, and that's okay. I did, um, I did make copies in my book club at the time read it. And I just found it fascinating. People were talking about my characters, you know, that I had created in my mind, but that was several years later. And I reread the book before I did the book club and I will never forget turning to my husband and saying, so is there anything that I left out of these characters or of, the, of myself? Because every single character, even though I spent really weeks and months trying to develop characters and figuring out, you know, their sun signs or what they would do and whatever, each one of them was really a part of me. And that was a, a really important learning lesson about writing. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So I mean, tell me just the the emotional experience um, having worked with and sort of interviewed interviewing uh, so many Holocaust survivors. So, so the experience for me, my job as an educator was really to help them pass along their legacy to students and teachers. And so, we did programs for um, ten to twelve programs a year, from two hundred fifty to the last program was eight hundred fifty kids, where. 10 students sat at a table with a Holocaust survivor and had the opportunity to ask questions. Um, and then we, you know, talked about 
what happened to them as teenagers and then what's happening to the kids in, in South Florida as teenagers and the prejudice. And, and so it was really before bullying became popular, but it was basically um, understanding the lessons of the Holocaust. I was so privileged because I got to know these survivors well. And for me, what I learned was the resilience of the human spirit in a way that, I, I mean, for me, it was just an incredible opportunity. I'll never forget one time I was about, I guess I was about late forties and the Holocaust survivors were in their sixties and seventies. And, um, I went to a luncheon and I was thinking, you know, I can't even imagine what this is going to be like to be with these survivors at the luncheon. There was a band playing. These survivors got up and I was like in a room full of teenagers. And I realized how they had really picked up the pieces the from the ashes and had built their lives and lived full, incredible, wonderful lives. Of course, these are the survivors who were willing to talk about their experiences. I know there are survivors who were in their apartments, you know, not, not talking to anyone about anything, but it was really such a blessing to be able to do this, a, a huge gift. Yeah, I mean, geez, um, just thinking and kind of going back to Viktor Frankl for a minute, you know, man's search for meaning, yeah, I know he was. He made the point that if you were able to find meaning in, you know, in your suffering, um, in your circumstance, you know, those are the you know people who kind of made it. I mean, who obviously who weren't, you know, killed, right. um, but who were able to kind of come out and then being able to find meaning after that. Um, and, and I'm sure. I mean, you know, the, the, the people who don't talk. I mean, you know, we we didn't call it anything PTSD back then, but that I mean, oh my goodness, that. Um, you know, uh, I can't imagine. Well, you know, the survivors definitely had had nightmares. And, and when they would speak to the students, they'd very often say to me, you know, I didn't sleep the night before, I didn't sleep the night after. And, and when a survivor would talk, basically, he or she would talk and not cry until they started talking about when they said goodbye to their parents for yeah. the last time, their siblings. But what was really astonishing to me was the liberators. So we had, we also interviewed liberators at our center. One, one um, particular event, we honored four different liberators. And we had a session with these four men who were all in different, in different um, parts of the Army and Navy, Air Force actually. And they, they were talking about their experiences. They were young kids. They were 18, 19 years old, having no idea what yeah. was happening when they um, opened the gates and, and walked into to living hell, really. It was the liberators who said they never talked about the Holocaust until Holocaust denial started. And then they knew they had to, that they were the ones who were the witnesses and that they, it, was, it was incumbent upon them to speak about it. And those, the, those liberators were the ones who really suffered from PTSD because they kept it for 20, 30 years before they even began to talk about it. And that's a long time to hold that in. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember just reading, you know, some stories about liberators. And, and as you mentioned, sort of not knowing, there was, so, there was no you know, lack of awareness of, of what really was happening. Um, and them just not even being able to process or realize what they were seeing. Right. Um, 
Gosh, I can't imagine. And that goes for, you know, US, the Russians. Um, it, uh, oof, I just kind of get a chill down my spine hearing you talk about it. I know. There's so many stories, too, of, of survivors coming together after many, many years. I, I will never forget, I had survivors translating documents because we had a lot of documents in different languages. And Michael Bierenbaum from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, he's the one in Washington who actually created the, the inner workings of the exhibit. Uh, Michael came to look at our memorabilia. And so I had survivors lined up that were gonna meet with him. And while they were waiting, I had two of them inter, um, translating documents for me. And I went out of the room and I came back to get one of them and the two of them were standing and hugging each other. And why? Because they started talking and they realized, one realized that his parents were in the same ghetto as, um, as he was and he stood up at, the wet, at his parents' wedding. I mean, it was just, it was just this, coming together and these guys had worked together you know they had been in programs but there were so many stories like that they were just bone chilling just to hear the how they came together yeah but that, that's why these you know museums these centers um these exhibits are so important because it could happen again <laughs> you know it's we it, you yeah. know heaven forbid but um unless you document and remember it um you know, history repeats itself. It, it could happen again. And teach it. I mean, really, yeah. teach it and and help help the students understand what can happen. Yeah. yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about uh, the book uh, "Living and Leaving My Legacy," Volume One, and I assume that means there's a Volume Two plan. There's a Volume Two. Um, so, volume. So this book started because I've been keeping journals, like I said, since 1974. I have a collection currently of about 380 journals. But in 2002, I realized that I could not leave my journals to my children. I went through a whole process of should I, shouldn't I, whatever, and finally decided that no, I really wrote them for my eyes only. And so I, I wanted to leave something. And I, as an educator, kept thinking at the time I had written, I don't know, 300 and some journals. And and said, there's got to be something in these journals worth sharing, but I had no idea. But it, it kept recurring in my mind, like, what have I written? Because I would write them and literally put them in a safe that I keep in my house, a fireproof safe. So I decided to go back and start reading my journals and I divided my life into 70 different topics and started taking excerpts. It was a long, crazy process. It took me 14 years to go through 359 journals and then to, to take those journals and call down um, the, the things I wanted to share. And so there were some topics that were 75 pages, some pages, some were 450 pages that I eventually whittled down to around 30 pages per chapter. And I divided, <clears throat> I, I eliminated a lot of the chapters. So volume one has 11 chapters and volume two has 11 chapters. And they are all excerpts in my journals based on different subjects. So I have, I do have um, some work on the Holocaust in there. I have parenting, marriage, and being a woman. So the, the women's journey from 1974 has really changed. I had become an ardent feminist. And so there's that whole thread. Um, I have 
a chapter on spirituality. In, in volume two, I have um, a chapter that's called Those Who Are There. And what I did was I wrote about 30 vignettes of survivors' experiences, probably the most important writing that I've ever done, because that's really my promise to them to keep their story alive. What did you uh, learn about yourself just by going through and, and you know, those 359 journals you said? Um, what did you learn? What, what, what insights into yourself did you, did you uncover? Well, I learned that one thing that, that I think for me was the most insightful and interesting was I always considered myself having lived a very positive life. I've always felt like I was a blessed soul. And if someone had asked me before doing this project, how much of your life is positive and how much is negative, I would have probably said 50-50. And at the end, what I realized was that it, it, it wasn't really so, that you know everyone goes through tough times, good times, bad times. We, on a daily basis, we have all kinds of range of emotions. But what I learned was that because I journaled in the way that I did, when there was something negative, I worked through it to make it a positive. So that in general, my life feels positive. And so that was a, a really big thing that I learned. Um, I learned, I saw how I grew. I especially loved when I would see where I planted a seed and then watched it grow into something. And, and um, I also learned what a huge gift that I'd given myself. So when I wrote this book, beyond realizing that I wanted to share it with more than just my children, um, what, I, what I really understood about this project and what I knew that I had to do, and after retiring from the Holocaust Center, I started teaching legacy classes, was that while I want people to read the book and it is about my life, it's really, what I really want is for people to look at my life and then look at their own life. So use my life as a mirror, what resonates for them, and then to be able to understand that how we live our life becomes our legacy. And that's, yeah. that's the real goal. That and also to help people understand the power and the gift of journaling because it, it really is. And so in the book, after each chapter, I have journal prompts and then I have pages where people can actually answer the, the prompts if, if they you know, want to write about them. But something to think about so it becomes more interactive. And it's a huge book. It's, a, it's very big. It's Look, I mean, this is how big it is. Oh my goodness. You're getting your money's worth. Yeah, for sure. We priced it before we realized just how much, how much it was going to cost. Um, yeah, the, the shipping alone, I'm sure. <laughs> had to order special envelopes. Um, it's, it weighs two pounds. When it came in the mail, I was shocked. It weighs yeah. two pounds. It's eight by 10. It's an inch thick. I mean, it's big. But hopefully people will read it and understand the importance of how they're living their life and, and helping people to live the best life they can. Yeah. So, I mean, having not published the, the first, your first novel, what was the publishing process like this? Like, how did you approach it? Did you go well, the traditional route and, and look for an agent or how, how'd, you, how'd you do it? Well, so I had written another book that I did publish after I left the Holocaust Center. I wrote a book of short stories about the Hollywood Beach Hotel and that one I self-published. This one, so, so now I'm, I'm 77 and what I realize is that 
I, I mean, I have no, no, none of us have any idea how long we're going to live, but I want to, I want to be able to put this out in the world and have the experience of that. And so I was willing to self-publish if that were the case, but someone who's a hybrid publisher, who's really basically just starting out um, and someone that I, that has worked with me in this cancer group that I volunteer um, doing a writing class, she offered to, she asked me if, if I would be interested in her publishing it. So it's a hybrid press. Um, and basically I worked with a web design, uh, a graphic designer whom she had, um, was part of her, her um, press. And the experience was absolutely incredible because the three of us really worked together. They, they just took this on like it, as if it were their own. And the three of us just worked so beautifully together and it was positive in every single way. The, one is a shaman, the publisher is a shaman. And so she had a lot to say about just, just in a different way of looking at the world. Um, and the other one was also very spiritual. So they brought that element in, especially when Mercury came in retrograde and also um, there was the big eclipse and things were going wrong. <laughs> the three, then they're telling me why. And I'm like, all right, whatever you say, just. <laughs> now I noticed that there was a, a co-author, Kay Adams. Um, was she one of the three that you're talking about? Or? Oh, she's not the co-author. Okay. She's actually, she actually wrote the foreword. I'm not oh, sure okay. exactly why it's listed that way. So Kay is um, one of the, she's a journal therapist. She's noted in the journal world actually in her, um, what I read on Google when I was just, I, I know Kay, but I just was looking up her bio. Um, she was she was listed along with Anne Frank and Ananias Nin as one of the journaling gurus of the world. And oh, wow. so Jay, uh, when, when Kay said she would write the, the um, forward, I was beyond thrilled because she really understood the value of journaling and and she explained it, in, you know, just in a beautiful way. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that Kay Adams, if I have my Godfather history correct, was Michael Corleone's wife, and the Godfather and the character <laughs> oh, was Kay Adams, played by uh, Diane Keaton, I believe, a young Diane Keaton. Oh wow! I have to so tell Kay that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she's probably heard it once or twice oh, before. Yeah, I, I would guess so. I would guess so. Um, well, I do have a couple of fun questions here uh, for you, which I always go through towards uh, the end of our time together. Uh, the first one being uh, kind of thinking back to uh, your childhood. Um, some of your favorite television shows when you were growing up, what, what were some of those? Okay, so I'm going to tell you two you probably have never even heard of because you were surely not born then. So one was I Remember Mama. It was, um, I remember going to my grandmother's house and watching it. And another one was Winky, I think it was Winky Dink. It was on, um, we put a screen, like a wax paper on our television and we could draw Winky Dink's adventures. <laughs> so that goes back a really long time ago. I'm talking in the fifties. Yeah. yeah. Um, when, when television first came out and when we first got a, a TV. But um, as a teenager, a young teenager, Mickey Mouse Club. Oh, sure, yeah was something that we couldn't get home fast enough. In fact, one of my girlfriend's mothers would pick us up from school. So we would get to see the whole Mickey Mouse Club. So that was probably a show. And just to say that I hardly watched television for most of my life until the pandemic. 
And then I got really hooked. And my daughter to this day cannot believe that we're talking television shows. <laughs> so, what um, What did you like during the pandemic? What What caught well, your attention? I'm totally hooked on This Is Us oh. and A Million Little Things. I mean, those two shows and also Offspring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those. This Is Us, I, I watched the first season and it was just too heavy for me. Like I, I'm, I'm so like empathic. I just, I couldn't take it. Um, you know, I, I felt a connection to all these characters and, you know, the episode where, where you see the, uh, you know, the father die, I'm like, I, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but um, it was just too much. I, I couldn't, I couldn't watch it anymore. And I know it just wrapped. Um, yeah. But I, and I know people love, uh, love that show. Yeah. It's, it's tough. Yeah. I watched the second last one. My daughter's coming for our my book launch event. And she asked me to please save the last one to watch with her. But she and my niece, who's a, a psychologist, and I have been texting through all, all throughout this whole thing. And yeah. a million little things is also really an excellent show. So those are two now. There you go. Um how about this? Uh favorite place you'd like to visit that you've never been to? Mm -hmm. Any place come to mind? I, I always wanted to go to Holland to tip through to the through the tulips. So I don't know that I'll get there, but um, that's one place I would like to go. Um, I'd like to go to Iceland. I'd like to go to. I've got a very long list. Now me too. I haven't been anywhere. Um, I would love to go to Iceland. I would love to swim in uh, the hot springs, um, and then just see the sky. Um, you know, just to see that uh, tiptoe to the tulips, though now. I have to pick up on that because uh, if I remember, there was a guy named Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he used to sing Tiptoe Through the Tulips. He did. He did. With his ukulele. And now that's going to be in the head, my head for the rest of the day. Right. Sorry. Um, no, that's okay. There's worse things that could be in my head. That's true. Um, <laughs> how about this? Uh, you've had a couple of different careers, explored a lot of interests. What's one career you'd like to pursue that you never have? Mm -hmm. Probably being a psychologist. Yeah. Probably being a psychologist. And I, I have to say that I really have found ways to do that. I mean, people have always said to me, are you a psychologist? So in some way to be a therapist, but probably isn't going to happen. Yeah. You know, it, well, I mean, never say never. My, my niece just graduated with her. Um, she, she's a licensed clinical social worker or she's about to be licensed. Right. Um, and, you know, which is basically being a psychologist, but without oh, sure. the, the research part, right? So it's right. all practical. And I, I look at her, I'm like, first of all, I'm so proud that she went in that direction. Um, but th there's, a, I'd be, be lying if I didn't say there's a little bit of jealousy there because um, that's, that's the career path I wanted to have. And, and I don't see myself going back for a PhD anytime soon. I've got three kids in college. So um, that's, <laughs> that's just not yeah, happening. I don't think so. <laughs> that's not happening. But I mean, these, these are kind of therapeutic uh, therapy sessions for me sometimes. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I've heard a few that you've gotten into stuff, which is great. Yeah, you know, I try. Um, uh, how do you feel when you're staring at a blank piece of paper and uh, or a computer screen, depending on how you write? And and. Your goal is to write something that day. That is never an issue for me. Um, I love nothing more than a blank piece of paper. You know, as a journal writer, when I open up my journal, I have no idea. Once in a while, I might know what's going to come down, but very often I start writing and don't know and fill four pages, five pages or whatever. Um, so blank screens do not threaten me at all. And um, I, when I wrote the short stories, 
which was fiction, and I'm really not a fiction writer, I, I would say I was a little more intimidated, but, um, but I somehow found a way, found my way. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I get so many different responses to that question. It's either I embrace it, I love it, nothing excites me more than the possibilities of, you know, the canvas I'm about to paint to um, scared to death, anxiety, don't know what I'm going to write, you know, want to do everything but write. And then they write the first paragraph and it's off to the, off right. to the races. But um, how about this? Uh, having just published this book, what, what lesson about publishing, um, if any, do you feel like you learned the hard way? You know, it's been such a positive experience for me that I don't really think, um, I, I just, I think that probably just to trust in the universe, you know, and just, just go with the fact that this is going to all come out okay. And so, for example, um, on my pub date, it was supposed to be June 7th, but in order to get books published for uh, get books for my publicist, um, I had to ask for books, you know, I had to order books, and they considered a, um, April 28th is my pub day, which just totally blew my mind, because that's not what was happening. So we had to take the book off, and get a new ISBN number, and start all over again, so that we can have June 7th as a pub date. So that was a lesson, you know, just, just we needed to do, to do more research than we had done. Yeah. Um, you know, one observation I'll make is, you know, you, you partnered with this hybrid publisher and you worked, you know, with two other people to kind of really bring it to life. And, you know, one of the lessons I could point out there is that this is, this is not something you can really do alone. Um, right. You know, you need to, it's always great to have someone to collaborate with, um, uh, probably good to have a shaman on hand too. Uh, just. That helped. <laughs> that was great. But also, also, I have a, a few friends who are authors who really held my hand, and that's helpful too. And and you're right. I mean, there's you can't you can't write a book by yourself. I don't think. I mean, maybe some people do, but I I have quite a village behind me, and I'm so grateful. Yeah, there is an importance to community. You know, the writing part can be sort of a solo activity. But as you're putting it all together, getting up to launch, post-launch, like being part of a writing community, I think is very helpful um, because they'll tell you things that you don't, you won't learn otherwise. Um, and they can be more objective too than maybe friends or family. Yeah. Before we, um, before we went on air, um, we were talking, you mentioned that you'd done focus groups. So what I did with my book was I had probably 30 people read it and then I divided them. I gave them two dates and said, we're going to do a Zoom session and I want to hear feedback. And it was really like a focus group. It was yeah. so fascinating to me to do it that way. And to, you know, not, and I did get individual feedback too, but to then have the conversation about the book and it was a great experience. So yeah. I recommend that. that. That's helpful. It's also, you've got to be very vulnerable when you do something like that because, um, the feedback sometimes can be critical. So, and you have to be open to, to kind of hearing some criticisms. Um, so you talk, that's important. You talk vulnerability. I mean, this book is, is my life. I am putting out there. Um, when my daughter read it, she called me up and she said, mom, here's a list of things that a 
child should never have to read about their parents. So, so I mean, there is a lot of vulnerability. Also, the question of self-doubt, you know, like, why would I think that my life is worth anyone reading about? And what is this all about? And so I think that that's a really big piece of this is the, the vulnerability. And I think most authors go through that at some yeah. point. Yeah, I mean, I think most authors have imposter syndrome. Um, regardless of how big their name is in the industry, there's always that lingering feeling as, am I good enough to do this? You know, why would people want to read something I did? Um, but, uh, and that's, you got to get over it. You, know, you have to get over imposter syndrome. Um, and if you, if you can give your younger self some words of advice, you know, if you can give, you know, that maybe that, that uh, going back to, to 74, when he first started journaling, um, you know, you certainly weren't a child back then, but if you could whisper some, some words of advice into that younger, uh, younger woman's ear, what would you tell her? To stay in the moment, to, to be present and to understand that things will happen for reason. And like I had said before, trust in the universe. I think, you know, those are lessons that took me a while to learn, but I have, I, and I think journaling has really helped me stay in the present. Yeah. Um, any launch events coming up um, that yeah. people can attend or, or look into? Yeah, so I do have um, a launch event on June 12th in South Florida, which is on my website. And I also am planning to do one or two virtual launch events, and I will post those on my website as well. Very cool. And the website address would be what? Would be M E R L E R S A F E R S T E I N. So well, and I will be sure to put those in the show notes so people don't have to write it down in their cars as they're listening to this. Um, so we make sure we'll have those links there. Uh, any social media you want to talk about? You so, know, yes, it's all on, all on my website. All the social media is on my website as well. So we will point uh, people there. Of course, uh, the book is Living and Leaving My Legacy, Volume 1. The author is uh, the lovely Merle Saferstein. Uh, thanks so much for uh, joining me today, Merle. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure, really. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.